Welcome to Critical Aspects of Law Enforcement, a podcast where we dive into the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being of the law enforcement officer. Welcome back to Critical Aspects of Law Enforcement. I'm your host, Vernon Phillips. In this episode, we're going to discuss PTSD and law enforcement. So with this month being PTSD Awareness Month, and also today, June 27th, being PTSD Awareness Day, I thought it was a good idea to get on here and discuss what PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, looks like in the law enforcement profession. Now, if we define PTSD, the American Psychological Association defines PTSD as an anxiety problem that develops in some people after extremely traumatic events. What causes PTSD? Well, that's the experiencing or witnessing a traumatic event. So for someone in the general population, this could be natural disaster, serious accident, or sexual violence, threatened with death, or even just serious injury. Now, for the law enforcement community or the law enforcement officer, this could be things like a significant event involving children, death or injury of a coworker, mass casualty, heavy media exposure, prolonged efforts with no success, suicide of a coworker, or in the line of duty shooting. But we have to remember when we start talking about critical incidents and traumatic events, it's up to the individual person what they perceive as critical or traumatic event. So what you may perceive as a critical or traumatic event in your life may be different than myself and vice versa for others. So when we start looking at that and how that develops and you know begins to present in somebody's life, obviously there's symptoms that come with that. So we start looking at the symptoms of PTSD. We're going to have intrusive thoughts. So intrusive thoughts are repeated involuntary memories, distressing dreams, flashbacks of the traumatic event. You're going to have avoiding reminders of traumatic events. So that's going to be people, places, activities, or situations. You're going to have those negative thoughts or feelings, ongoing and distorted beliefs about self or others, ongoing fear, horror, anger, guilt, or shame or feeling detached or estranged. And then you're going to have arousal and reactive symptoms. That's the being irritable or having angry outbursts, behaving recklessly or in a self-destructive way, being easily startled or having problems concentrating or sleeping. So when we start looking at, you know, how PTSD presents itself or how it can be recognized or detected in an individual, in an officer, that's going to be through the various signs and symptoms that we've just described. And it's going to be the extent and also the history of those symptoms. Symptoms must last for more than a month, and they must cause distress or disrupt daily functions in the individual. And symptoms generally will present within three months of the initial critical and traumatic event, but they could also appear months or even years down the road from there. So we start looking at critical incidents and traumatic events, and we start asking ourselves the question, well, how many of those can an officer experience in just one shift? Well, that's really up in the shift that day. There could be several. There could be one. There could be none. When we start breaking this down and looking at this, we start looking at through some of these symptoms, you know, like the intrusive thoughts, the repeated involuntary memories, the distressing dreams, or the flashbacks of the traumatic event. Most officers, if they've been in some type of critical or traumatic event, they probably have some of these already. They probably are able, you know, just to remember exactly what happened in a certain situation or they have flashbacks of that event. But when we start talking about those repeated involuntary distressing dreams, things like that. That's when we see individuals being warped right back to that situation. 
So when I start thinking about the intrusive thoughts, it reminds me of one of the trainings I attended and there was an individual there and he was talking about, he'd gotten a phone call from one of his supervisors and said, hey, look, I need you to come. I need you to come over here and help me. So-and-so just took his life. So he goes over there to help him out and there's nobody there's nobody available to come. There's nobody available to help, you know, kind of clean up. He describes as he's on his hands and knees and he's cleaning up just the mess that was left behind. They're using a dustpan and a broom. And he tells this story and he says, I thought I was fine. I had no issues with it. It was just kind of one of those calls where you're like, I just want to get it done with, get it over and move on and not have to worry about it. Fast forward six months down the road, a year down the road. I don't exactly remember the, the full time frame there. But he says he was at home and he went to sweep something up on the floor and he's sweeping and he gets a dustpan. He kneels down, goes to sweep in the dustpan and automatically he's right back in that room. And he said, I could smell the smell that day. It was as if I was there again. So we move forward from there and we start looking at avoiding reminders of the traumatic event. So avoiding people, places, activities, objects or situation. That's going to be people that have suffered with PTSD. They're going to avoid people that remind them of the event. So this could even be family members, friends, co-workers. They may avoid places or the place that reminds them of the event, the activities, objects, or situations. So for somebody that, let's say they had a critical or traumatic event, you know, at a particular part in the city and all of a sudden they may not go in that area anymore. They might avoid that area because they can't drive through there anymore. When I start thinking about that, I think about all the individuals from the Boston Marathon bombing several years ago. How many of them may have developed PTSD from that event, avoid marathons from this point moving forward? Or maybe they avoid Boston in general moving forward. And that can also be hard for friends and families, especially if an individual is kind of separating themselves, you know, pulling themselves away because they don't want that reminder. They don't want to you know, have that reminder back in their life. The other thing is like the negative thoughts and feelings. So that ongoing and distorted belief about self and others. So or that ongoing fear, horror, anger, guilt or shame or feeling detached or estranged. You know, that ongoing fear, horror for them, that might be they're worried about something else happening. So they have this fear or this horror of what's going to happen. Or now they have a distorted belief about themselves or others. Maybe they feel they mishandled the situation. So now they feel that they're incapable or they're no longer confident in themselves or maybe confident in someone else that maybe mishandled the situation or they didn't get the support they needed from somebody or just feeling detached or strange because they can't express what they're feeling. So it's just going to cause that separation between friends and families and significant others. And the last thing with the symptoms that we talked about is arousal or reactive symptoms. So being irritable or having angry outbursts, behaving recklessly in a self-destructive way, being easily startled or having problems concentrating or sleeping. So, you know, if you have somebody who, you know, used to be pretty calm, cool and collected, even keel and all of a sudden they're just starting to present signs of just being irritable or just having angry outbursts or all of a sudden maybe they just start to behave recklessly. They're just taking just unnecessary risk. When we start looking at the law enforcement community, the law enforcement profession, you know, that could be, you know, excessive speeding or you know, maybe they're they're not wearing their vest or you know, maybe they're not wearing their seatbelt or go running code to a call and they're not clearing intersections. They're not slowing down. They're not checking and they're just barreling through or they get to a a call and they're not waiting for backup. They're going in there. It's kind of that that cowboy mentality just behaving recklessly or could be other things like heavy alcohol or drug abuse 
So the more time we spend learning these symptoms directly related to PTSD, the better we can recognize them or detect them, not only in our own lives, but also in the lives of other officers, our coworkers, or maybe even our friends or family. So when we start looking at PTSD and those symptoms, well, what are some of the ways that it can be treated? I mean, there's several different treatments that are available. There's things like cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. There's cognitive processing therapy, which is CPT. There's other forms of cognitive therapy. There's also narrative exposure therapy. You can look up more information on those. There's information on each of these types of therapies and treatments. You can go to the American Psychological Association. That will give you a whole definition of what that looks like and how that works to help an individual suffering with PTSD to recover. So we start looking specifically at PTSD in law enforcement. There's over 900,000 sworn law enforcement officers in the U.S. today. And according to studies, there's anywhere between 12% to 30% that are dealing with PTSD right now. So we think about that and we look at that. The reason that the studies are so wide range from 12% to 30% is because oftentimes that is attributed to the fact where people are unwilling to talk about it. They're unwilling to share exactly what's going on. So in some of those studies, they're not really actually saying, hey, this is really what's going on. But statistically, you're probably looking at one in every four officers as experiencing symptoms related to PTSD. So that means if there's a call for service and they show up to a citizen's home, that citizen has a one in four chance that the officer or the deputy that comes to their door is dealing with PTSD symptoms. And when we step back as a law enforcement community, we should say, okay, what do we need to do? How can we address this? And how can we change this? When we start looking at critical incidents and traumatic events, and that exposure, and how over the course of a law enforcement officer's career, that just continues to build up. But there's also significant studies that suggest it's not so much the critical incident or traumatic event per se causes PTSD to present in an officer. It's stress from the officer's daily work life. That shows stronger relations to things like sleep disruption and also PTSD symptoms. So we have to do better at providing strategies and skills to cope with the daily stressors the officers deal with. So that's the occupational and organizational stressors. So that's the the bureaucracy and coworker relations that we talked about in the last episode. That significantly improves their overall well-being. The more we actually invest into dealing with those, the better chance we have to address some of these things that are going on. So we start looking at how do we reduce PTSD symptoms and improve stress-related health in the law enforcement officer. We have to consider developing better stress management interventions that will be skill-based and you know embody just the idea of, hey, we need to look at this and we need to incorporate it into a training-focused police culture, which is what we already do. We train for various things. We train at the range. You do DTAC. So taking the necessary skills to deal with stress and other mental health presenting concerns that arise in the law enforcement community We have to incorporate those into the law enforcement profession. So we start looking at how do we address reducing PTSD symptoms and improve stress-related health in the law enforcement officer. In a recent article that just came out addressing this very thing, one of the suggestions that came up was mindfulness-based intervention, intentional non-judgmental awareness of thought, emotions, 
and sensation through sitting and walking meditation, movement practices, self-inquiry, and group discussion. Now, there's a lot of law enforcement officers that are probably like, whoa, nope, I'm out. But here's the thing is when we look at this, there is data that shows consistent reductions in perceived stress, anxiety, and depression with some evidence of improved sleep and reduction of inflammatory markers that cause risks like cardiovascular disease, depression, and PTSD. So when we start looking at incorporating some type of mindfulness-based intervention, it actually has a benefit. One of those things that have come out recently for the law enforcement profession, specifically for law enforcement tailored to LEOs, is mindfulness-based resiliency training, or MBRT. So there's a lot of resources that are out there, and this is just one of those things that maybe we could look at incorporating into the law enforcement profession. But if you're dealing with maybe PTSD or a loved one that's got PTSD, there's a lot of resources that are out there. There's a lot of help out there. Don't try to deal with it on your own. Don't allow the stigma that's currently manifest itself into the law enforcement profession to deter you from actually seeking out and making use of resources, seeking out help, asking for help, because it's okay to not be okay. See, this old mindset or this old idea of this tough guy bravado, like, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, suck it up, stow it, stuff it, stack it, statistically does not work. And when you look at the data, it's never worked because oftentimes those individuals say, hey, I'm a tough guy, I don't have to deal with it, are often offsetting it with something like self-medication, so heavy alcohol or drug abuse or other things, and it's manifesting in their lives in some way. We have to look at other alternatives to actually help our law enforcement community. We have to try to talk more about this stuff because that's what reduces the stigma in law enforcement. This whole idea that we don't get mental health days and pull yourself up by your bootstraps or go find your safe place, that's just ignorance. Because when we start looking at any other injury, if there's an officer that gets hurt, they blow their knee out or they have something else, automatically they go out, hey, get better, hope to see you back. When we start talking about mental health, it's like, ooh, hold on now. The more we talk about this, the more we train about this, the more we educate ourselves on this, the more we reduce the stigma. And once we reduce the stigma, the better impact we have on the law enforcement community. Because right now there's this idea, well, I'm not going to reach out because if I do, people are going to perceive me as weak. They're going to think that I'm crazy or they're going to take my gun or they're going to put me on a desk. But here's the thing is the longer you hold on to those presenting concerns and the more that your idea, your thought process of that, that end result is going to come true. See, what we've done in the law enforcement community is we've created this because we have this idea that we can't talk, that we can't share about it and we can't discuss it. We've created this end result of if I do say something, they're just going to, I'm going to lose my job. They're going to take my gun. They're going to think I'm crazy. So what happens? Somebody dealing with something, they internalize it. They keep it to themselves. They just keep pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down until it can't be pushed down any farther. And then it manifests in some form in their life. And it's probably generally in some way where they just completely self-destruct or implode. And then we step back and we say, well, they just weren't good for law enforcement. Or maybe we just did them a great disservice. The more we talk about this, the more we train about this, the more we reduce the stigma and the better chance we have to get good, qualified officers who are dealing with just the everyday stuff on a road to recovery and continued recovery and health moving forward. I appreciate you tuning in and listening to Critical Aspects of Law Enforcement. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share this resource with your fellow officers. The goal of Critical Aspects is to serve, support, and sustain the law enforcement professionals. So head over to www 
criticalaspects.org for more resources and information. And as always, God bless and be safe.